This is a word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. H. Rap Brown was considered a civil rights radical, saying the violence of white supremacy called for armed resistance. So many of his critics weren't surprised when he was arrested and convicted of shooting two cops. But was he a guilty man or a convenient scapegoat? He really embodied this idea that violence was a means for social change because oppressed people were facing violence themselves. With his story and and, and with his life, we really get a chance to see what that means. The story that inspired the Radical Podcast, coming up on A Word, with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. On the night of March 16th, 2000, two Atlanta cops who were trying to apprehend a fugitive were shot. One dies, one survives, and he points the finger at the man they've been trying to arrest. That man was Imam Jamil Abdullah Alamin, a black Muslim community leader who was known for hating two things, drugs and cops. But was Imam Jamil guilty? a victim of rush to judgment, or the target of slow-moving law enforcement and a vendetta, payback for his radical past. That's the mystery at the heart of Radical, an investigative series from Campside Media, Tenderfoot TV, and iHeart Podcasts. But it's much more than a true crime story. It's a window into the history of the civil rights movement, the afterlife of its foot soldiers, and the sometimes deadly moments when they cross paths with police. Journalist Mosi Secret hosts the Radical Podcast, and he joins us now. Mosi Secret, welcome to A Word. Thank you. It's great to be here, Jason. Before we dive into the crime that's at sort of the heart of the story, let's talk a bit about Imam Jamil, or as he's been known, H. Rap Brown, especially for our younger listeners who might be unfamiliar with the history. Talk about how he came to be involved with the civil rights movement. He was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana in the early 40s, was subject there to various types of racial violence that that was kind of normal for for that part of the South. And he had an older brother, Ed Brown, who was becoming more involved in the movement. And he kind of followed his brother into movement politics. His brother moved to D.C. and went to Howard and uh, started becoming active there. And uh, H. Rap Brown started becoming active in D.C. as well. Long story short, he eventually started organizing in Alabama, Lowndes County, Alabama, famous for the organizing that led to the kind of early iteration of the Black Panther Party, and eventually became the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. His rhetoric was scary for a lot of people. And um, at that point, uh, the kind of law enforcement surveillance and uh, direct targeting by COINTELPRO, that stuff increased, and eventually he lands in prison in the the mid-70s. You mentioned he was the leader of Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, but he also in addition to sort of how you said, had the language that some people found problematic, um, he wasn't necessarily in line with Martin Luther King. He spoke with one of his comrades, Willie Ricks, now known as Mukasa Dada, about their philosophy at the time. I want to play you this clip and get your thoughts on the other side. We use nonviolence as a tactic, but Dr. King used it as a way of life and whatever. And we said, we do it in front, let a white man hit us in front of a camera. But if they hit us in the camera in there, we're going to fuck them up. Uh, if they follow us around the corner, we're going to fuck them up. How did that philosophy play out for H. Rap Brown and, and lead to his split? Because you weren't supposed to say things like that, right? How did that play out? What were the consequences of, of that sort of philosophy? 
He eventually became the person to blame the scapegoat at the highest levels of government for the uprisings of the long, hot summer of 1968. You know, at that point, he was barnstorming the country, having these fiery orations in front of big crowds and... Um, you know, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, uh, President Johnson at that point needed somebody to blame. And here was this figure who showed up in a place. And then when he left, sometimes crazy things happened. And so he became someone who was easy to point the finger at. And there began a pretty coordinated effort, uh, particularly by the federal government, to bring a case against him. Everyone knows about Cointelpro. It's like a part of American popular popular culture and history. But it's really interesting to get into the finer details of it and see kind of how they do it. And they essentially, you know, manufactured this case against him that led to, eventually led to his retreat from public life. I think there is a generation of people, politically engaged boomers and Gen Xers, who understand COINTELPRO. But I think there's a lot of millennials and Zoomers out there that don't know. They may say the feds, they may say they were after your government, but they don't actually know what was done at that time. So give us some examples, like what are some of the things that COINTELPRO would do? What are some of the strategies that were used at the time to undermine civil rights leaders and activists like H. Rap Brown? Yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll speak to, to this case. He gave a rally in Cambridge, Maryland, where subsequently there was an uprising. He was charged in a local case with inciting a riot, I believe. And so he, there was a charge hanging over his head, even though evidence would emerge later that he did not incite this riot. For this purpose, he had a charge on him. And so he subsequently traveled back home to Baton Rouge, Louisiana with a rifle, which he checked in as you did at that time, but he was traveling with a rifle. But he was charged federally with traveling with a weapon while under indictment, which was a federal crime at that time. Even though the state charge was essentially a false charge, the feds came in on this um federal charge. And at that point, he's in the court system. At that point, he has court dates. He has bail to make. He has to get a lawyer. His Movements are restricted, and he begins to, you know, just be kind of subject to the constant surveillance of the FBI. His parents became subject to the constant surveillance of the FBI. His wife's family became subject to the constant surveillance of the FBI. And this has a tremendous, it, it disrupts daily life and your ability to just kind of carry on as a normal human being, much less, you know, like an activist leader. And so he began to have these troubles, you know, and eventually this builds to a charge that is questionable. Even though the charge is questionable, he's in the appellate process for years and years. And so this just, it kind of drag you into the system that in a way that takes your, takes your fire away. What can you tell us about Atrap Brown's conversion to Islam? Was he a religious man beforehand or was Islam sort of his first true sort of commitment to any particular faith? And what was sort of his role in Metro Atlanta at the time of the shooting? So he went to prison in New York State. Um, I want to say 1973. He was first held at Rikers Island and before he was moved uh, to the state prison facility, Attica. At Rikers Island, uh, there was a group called Dar al-Islam that was ministering and Imam Jamil kind of fell in with this group. Now, you have to remember there are a lot of things that are happening for people who are incarcerated. Number one, there's like a group dynamic there. You kind of have to belong to a group 
to survive. And so a lot of that was divided along racial lines. And one of the kind of options for a black person would be to kind of join one of these emerging black Muslim groups. That was one factor. Another factor is that he had been kind of under the gun for so long and found himself in a cage, essentially. And so you were at a moment of quiet and reflection and wanting to kind of assess your life. And at that moment, we find a lot of people who turn to religion, whether Islam or Christianity or whatever else. I think these two things combine to kind of create this, you know, inflection point where he chose another path. When he left prison in the late 70s, he moved to Atlanta, where his wife was living, and set up this little community. He uh, became a ma'am, and they were able to get a lot of neglected houses, and people started moving in. Um, working class folks, folks who were coming home from prison. And he was essentially the leader of this community that, for whatever reason, was able to kind of operate almost on its own. The Atlanta Police Department didn't really bother them. Like he was, he was leader and judge and law enforcement all in one and spiritual advisor. That was his role for 15 or 20 years leading up to this, to this shooting that, that the podcast is about. We're going to take a short break. We come back more on the Radical True Crime podcast with host Mosi Secret. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about Radical, the investigative podcast with host Mosi Secret. At this point, we're moving forward from Imam Jamil's history to the night of March 16, 2000. That's when two Atlanta sheriff's deputies, Ricky Kinchin and Algernon English, were shot and Kinchin died of his wounds. What do we know about what happened that night? Okay, so... Kenshin and English were sheriff's deputies uh, with the Fulton County Sheriff's Department. They were there serving a warrant on a ma'am Jamil, Jamil Alameen, for a, missing a court date. And so they had circled the neighborhood that night and had been looking for him over a period of weeks. And they showed up around 10 o'clock on the night of March 16, 2000. As the account goes, they pull up to the masjid or the mosque that he led, and he wasn't there, and they drove off. When they drove off in the rearview mirror, they see a car drive up, which they know to be his. Mercedes-Benz, like 1980s model. And so they turn the car around, come back down the street, and the Mercedes-Benz and their squad car are then nose to nose. Someone emerges from that squad car, and uh, the, the two officers get out of their cars. Some words are exchanged, and the officers fear that the person who they are standing across from has a, a gun. That person does pull a high-powered rifle from under some type of garment and begins to fire. The officers return fire. As you said, one of them is killed. Another one of them is struck. When the larger kind of law enforcement community comes to the scene of the crime, the assailant has departed and there and a manhunt ensues. And so that's, that's kind of the events that happened that night. So an interesting wrinkle on this case and I mean, you're pretty familiar with Atlanta. I've lived in Atlanta. wasn't necessarily 20 years ago. Is that uh, both Kinchin and English are black police officers. One, do you think that had any reason to do with why they were the ones who were pursuing this warrant? Um, and two, 
Do you think that had an impact on how this case was investigated and why? Because that is, you know, two black officers being sent after an African-American activist. That's that's an interesting dynamic, even in Atlanta. Yeah. You know, as I understand it, it was one of these situations where, you know, these officers show up for their shift roll call and they it's essentially like pulling a ticket or like you're going to you're going to go handle this warrant tonight. So in that sense it was a coincidence. I mean it, we're also in Atlanta and Fulton County where just because of the demographics there's a good chance that the officers are going to be black. Uh, because it's, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's a mostly black city. So there's a good chance that the cops are going to be black. So I don't know if there was anything, you know, intentional about the fact that that these two cops were pursuing him that night. In the aftermath of the shooting and the way that the prosecution was handled, both, uh, you know, his apprehension and the, and the prosecution, I don't get the sense that their being black had a big impact on the way things happened. But it was more about the fact that they were cops, you know, and the fact that they were law enforcement, the law enforcement community rallied around them. That's still the case today. Cops, that's like they're, that's like sacrosanct. You do not shoot cops. You were part of the community where Imam Jamil had become a leader. What was the city like in the year 2000? What was the environment like that, you know, the mayors, I mean, they've always had the black mayors and everything else like that, but what was kind of happening on the ground? The world that Imam Jamil Alamin inhabited was super small. They were in this, I mean, you could almost call them like, um, like isolationists. Like they did, the, the kids in the community didn't go to public schools. They tried to educate their own kids. They didn't really deal with the cops. It was like this totally self-contained world. And so he was operating in, in this world. And so what we really have to look at is not so much what was happening in Atlanta, but what was, what was happening in this little neighborhood and what did the feds think about it? And so what was happening in this little neighborhood is that there were some people in the neighborhood who were selling a lot of guns. And so that was something, given his history, that was scary to uh, the federal government. Now, it's it's quite arguable whether or not they had done anything wrong because these people had licenses to sell guns, but there was still a lot of suspicion that was coming their way. It's interesting. The other thing that was happening, that even if they were trying to live in their sort of own isolated community, is right as the trial was about to get underway, 9-11 happened. And this is something that really struck me. Um, when Imam Jamil is brought into court, he wears his prison uniform because he thinks that's actually safer than wearing the religious clothes that would mark him as a Muslim. Just talk a little bit about how, regardless of how isolationist you want to be, that the backdrop of 9-11 had on this trial of this Muslim man, former 1960s radical, who's was accused of shooting a cop. The shooting happened in March uh, of 2000, and the trial didn't happen until 2002. And part of the reason for that delay was because of 9-11. Pretty much all the parties involved, the defense lawyers, the prosecutors, and the judge, agreed that there was a risk of him being tainted in the eyes of the jury by the events of 9-11. People were scared of Muslims. People were angry at Muslims. People were just ready to like blame whomever. His trial happened amid this moment. And there was great concern that that this would would impact him negatively. So they they pushed it back, and even when they pushed it back, it was still an issue. You know, like um, Jamil Alamine, when he came to court, you know, there's the moment when the when the judge said or the bailiff says, "All rise for the." When the judge walks in and the jury walks in, he didn't rise. He refused to rise for for religious reasons. He is still quite visibly 
perhaps symbolic of this thing that people are scared of. There's a moment in the closing argument when the prosecutor who was giving the 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 argument uh, makes a reference to the fact that, that Jamil Alamine would not rise for the jury. He has a right to his religious beliefs, and so that became a problem in the jury. So it was definitely, this stuff was all hovering. When he went to prison, it, it, it became another kind of problem because he was Muslim. So uh, this stuff was very much in the air. We're going to take a short break and we come back more about the investigative podcast Radical with host Mosi Secret. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with journalist Mosi Secret about his investigative podcast Radical. One of the interesting things about your investigation is that, you know, while you outline the holes in the sort of official narrative, you don't land on any conclusions about Imam Jamil himself. In fact, you call him slippery. Uh, what exactly do you mean by that when you're describing sort of the focus of your podcast? He was a hard figure for people to pin down because he was a leader of this community, but he delegated a lot of his kind of leadership responsibility to what we might call like lieutenants or or uh, people who were working on his behalf. And so there was a, it was difficult to get a sense of what exactly he was doing. And particularly with this case, we're dealing with allegations from law enforcement that he was involved in criminal activity. And it was very difficult for them to uh, to pin anything on him. Imagine being in a place where one single individual calls all the shots. People go to them for, with their family disputes. They go to them with their work disputes. Um, you know, uh, he meets out discipline, all of that stuff. And so somebody with that type of control, you would presume, assume that that control extends to all facets of life, which is what law enforcement assumed as well. So when these things start to happen, they think, well, of course he's the one who's ordering it. Of course he's the one who's calling the shots. But it was quite difficult for them to to kind of pin these things on him. I think that's that's why one of the reasons he was so slippery. Here's the thing, like the heart of his defense is he had some issues with the way that he was identified. You know, what was what was his defense? Because here's the thing, as, as we said at the beginning, if this is somebody who was known to to, to hate drug dealers uh, and to hate cops, you know, and then a cop gets shot and killed, what's your defense? Because obviously, you know, you, you have a reputation, you know, the motive is already there. So what were some of the main keys to, to his defense? You know, one of the kind of funny things when I started doing interviews on on this project was I would talk to people and they would say, oh, he could have done it. But he didn't do it. It was because, like you said, he had not only this antipathy towards the cops, he was like trained in using weapons and, and you know, like he was all of these things. But, you know, at the trial focused on a few things. One was that the surviving officer who identified him, it was not a flawless identification. Basically, he made a description of his assailant that, that did not fit the physical characteristics of Jamil Alamine. He described the person shooting him as having uh, gray eyes, you know, an unusual characteristic for a black person. Jamil Alamine did not have gray eyes. He described himself as having wounded, having shot his assailant. Jamil Alamine was captured, rehended with no injuries, no bullet wounds. And so 
these things were raised at trial to, you know, call into question the fact that he was the one and maybe point towards someone else doing it. There was also some evidence presented by the defense calling into question the forensics that were used. One of the forensic evidence prosecution produced was ballistics, and they claimed that the bullets that were retrieved from the scene and from the bodies of the officers matched a weapon that was found with the Jamil Alamin and that he had fired. That was that was one of the big claims. But, you know, there's a lot of research that suggests that it is actually impossible to um, connect a particular bullet with a particular gun. And so the defense was really kind of hitting on that, um, challenging that piece of forensic evidence. Those are the are the main two things. I want the audience to understand there's still a couple episodes left to be released of Radical, but spoiler alert, uh, Imam Jamil is convicted, but he's not given the death penalty and he's still incarcerated and he's still appealing his case and he's 80 years old now. At this point, what does he hope for in this process? Does he think he will ever see the light of day again? Does he want to expose the sort of inherent corruption in the Atlanta Police Department? What's he shooting for today? Uh, I should say that we were not able to interview him. He didn't respond to a letter I wrote seeking comment. And it's also very difficult to get interviews in federal prison. Uh, and so most of most of what we know about his wishes come from various court filings. He has exhausted his state and federal appeals and habeas petitions. His last remaining hope for any type of early release from prison is something called the Conviction Integrity Unit, which is a part of the Fulton County DA's office. And this is like a post-conviction review looking for instances of wrongful conviction. And so they currently have the case under review. They have had the case under review for some time now and have released no findings. So that's that's the last remaining hope. We do also know that the family made a petition to move Jamil Alamin closer to home. He's in a medical prison in Arizona. And that's, you know, really hard for family to get back and forth to. So they would like to get him closer to home. So, you know, perhaps there is some resignation, you know, on the part of his supporters that he might be there, you know, for the rest of his life. But at least maybe we can get him a little bit closer to home. I was asked this at the end, um, you know, how people can participate, how people can contribute. Obviously, you can listen to this podcast, which is legitimately really fascinating. And there's a lot of history, a lot of perspective. And I'm a fan, again, of sort of podcasts that do a good job of world building and sort of bring us into why this matters. What do you hope the impact of this podcast will be? Once people are done listening to the remaining episodes in Radical, what do you want them to go out and do? What do you want them to go out and say? What do you want them to think about America or civil rights activism or faith? How do you want them to be changed when they're done listening? Yeah, um, that's definitely something that we want and definitely something that we were thinking about as we were writing the final episodes. You know, I think about Jamil Alamine, both, you know, as the imam in Atlanta and as, as this kind of former chapter that he had as H. Rep. Brown. He really embodied this idea that violence was a was a means for social change because oppressed people were facing violence themselves. And so with his story and, and, and with his life, we really get a chance to see what that means. Uh, we get a chance to see what, how the federal government responded to it. Uh, we get a chance to see how this community that he led was shaped by this philosophy. We get a chance to see what happened to him, what happened to people around him. 
the things that he was responding to, violent police aggression of black and brown communities, those things are those things remain a part of our those that. And the rhetoric that he brought and the ideas that he brought um, are also still strains of movement politics. And so really, I think in this story, what we have is his life is a lesson and people can take away what they want to take away about the effectiveness of that strategy. Mostly Secret is the host of the Radical Podcast. It's a production of Campside Media, Tenderfoot TV, and iHeart Podcast. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Mostly Secret, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Great talking with you. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.